Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hi, everybody. I think we've got a great speaker tonight, and I know he's got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to introduce him. I just want to mention a little bit of housekeeping. Our next uh, lecture is in two weeks, so don't come next week. There won't be anyone here, so we'll see you in two weeks for the next lecture. Okay, and without further ado, uh, Jeff Sandifer lives a dual life as an entrepreneur and a teacher. As an entrepreneur, Jeff founded his first successful business at age 16. His third business, Sandifer Offshore, started at age 27, returned $500 million in profits on a $1 million investment in less than four years. Recently, he sold uh, Sandifer Capital Partners, an oil and gas investment firm that held several billion dollars in assets. Business may be his day job, but Jeff's passion is teaching. While at the University of Texas, students awarded Jeff with the school's outstanding teacher five times, and he was selected by Business Week as one of the top entrepreneurship professors in the United States. Eight years ago, Jeff and a group of successful entrepreneur teachers started the Acton School of Business, named after Lord Acton, the Victorian scholar of freedom. The school's grueling 100-hour-a-week, one-year MBA program has won numerous awards, including having the Princeton Review, the gold standard for business school rankings, named Acton Students students as the most competitive MBAs in the nation, and rank its faculty in the top three in the country above Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton. Jeff is a graduate of the Harvard Business School, where he has served for over a decade on the school's governing committees and serves on a number of boards most targeted in defense of America's freedoms. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Sandifer. Thank you, Jill. Well, it's been a wonderful day on the UCSB campus. I've had such a good time with Bill and meeting with a number of you. But I have to tell you, that's not the reason that I left my family in Austin and flew across the country. I left my family because I think that a few of you in this room are going to change the world. And I came tonight to speak directly to you. As I was sitting in my hotel room last night writing this talk, I tried to remember back what it felt like to be in your shoes. In my case, it was 1981. The country was in the midst of a great recession. Many people were fearful and expected the worst. I wondered how in the world would I get a job. I was hungry and I was smart, or at least smart enough. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make a difference with my life. But I just didn't know where to start. Deep down inside, in ways that I probably wouldn't even admit to myself, something tugged at my confidence. Did I really have what it takes to succeed? And even deeper, I worried, if I was successful, would I lose my soul in the process? Do you feel tonight like I felt then? Because if you do, the next words I say may be the most important you'll hear all semester. Winning the rat race 
will not bring you happiness, satisfaction, or fulfillment. The winner of the rat race is still a rat, no matter how big the airplane or how big the house. You can remain on this fool's errand of chasing money, power, and fame, or choose instead the hero's journey of entrepreneurship, which is what I've come to talk about tonight. So I want to say that again. Winning the rat race will not bring you happiness, satisfaction, or fulfillment. The winner of the rat race is still a rat. So here's the paradox of my talk tonight. It's not about you, but it's all about you. If you're a little skeptical, I would be too. But you see, I've been where you want to go. So stick with me to the end, and I'll tell you something about your own hero's journey, no matter which path you choose. Now, if you're like my kids, you might say, why should you listen to an old man like me? Because I've found my entrepreneurial calling, and because you can too. Because I know that most of you are worried about the wrong things. And it may be the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your life. So for the next few minutes, I hope you'll let me lead you on this entrepreneurial journey, what we at Acton call the hero's journey of entrepreneurship. And if you'll walk with me, I've promised to give you a few practical tips that might give you a head start. So what does it mean to choose the hero's journey? It means to live every moment of your life as if it matters, because it does. It means to live as if you were on an important mission, because you are. It means seeing struggles as adventures and setbacks as lessons. And like Sir Lancelot in the Holy Grail or Harry Potter in Voldemort, what matters most isn't the prize at the end, but how the heroes changed in the process. Everything I will say to you in the next few minutes is backed not only by 2,500 years of wisdom literature, but all of the latest in neurobiology, experimental psychology, and behavioral economics. It's common sense, too. It's just that most people are too self-absorbed to pay attention to the obvious. At Acton, we make three promises to our students. We promise that they will learn how to learn, learn how to make money, we're crass like that, and learn how to live a life of meaning. We're serious about delivering on these promises. Now, most of our students come because of the second one. They see successful business people, and they want to get rich. By graduation, though, that second promise will seem trivial. These same students will leave Acton saying, oh, learn how to make money? I got that. It's not complicated. It's actually hard, but it's not complicated. But the most valuable thing I learned was learn how to learn. I learned how to ask questions, how to listen, how to be quiet, how to persuade. I learned how not to have to be the smartest person in the room. 
And perhaps most importantly, I know it's better to listen carefully to ask the right question. But here's what's most interesting. Three years after graduation, all of our students will come back and they'll say the same thing. Learn how to make money. Now, I still got that. It's hard, but I know how. Learn how to learn. Boy, that's fleeting if you don't practice listening, talking with evidence of being persuasive. But I still got that. But they'll say the most valuable thing they got out of the entire program was to learn how to live a life of meaning because it changed their lives. That third promise is the promise of an entrepreneurial calling and why I came here tonight. So we'll start this journey with my first bit of practical advice. Find great role models and ask great questions. In Acton's Life of Meaning course, each each student chooses 10 role models and interviews them for one to two hours each to ask about triumphs and regrets and lessons they wish they learned earlier. Now, three of these interviews have to be people between your age and 45, three between 45 and 60, and at least three over the age of 60. Here's what's interesting. All of those over 60 say basically the same thing. That at the end of life, you'll ask three questions. That only three questions will matter. Have I contributed something meaningful? Was I a good person? And who did I love? And who loved me? Nothing about fame or riches or power, but three simple questions. Did I contribute something meaningful? Was I a good person? And who did I love? And who loved me? Have I contributed something meaningful? The secret to unlocking that first question is to never give up this search for your calling, that special mission where you use your most precious gifts in a way that brings you great joy in the service of others. I found my gifts the hard way. I arrived at the Harvard Business School, and I was sure that I could outsmart those few people that I couldn't outwork. And I was positive that I could outwork those few people I couldn't outsmart. And I soon found that there were people so much smarter in this world than I was, and people willing to work so much harder than I'd ever imagined, that the only chance I had at success was to become an expert at something. And for me, that was oil and gas. I realized I had to focus if I wanted to succeed. It dawned on me that being world-class at something mattered. That people would play a great, pay a great deal to watch Michael Jordan play basketball, but nothing to watch Michael Jordan play baseball. That people would flock, at least in the old days, to watch Tiger Woods play golf, but cared nothing about seeing me play. That meant I had to find a calling that fit my gifts. And for me, that was oil and gas. So try this experiment. Ask five people who know you well what you do better than anyone else on the planet. Press for specifics. If you're like most people, you'll be surprised what you find. 
the answers will be consistent, and you'll discover your gift is something you dismissed because you thought it was easy. Because for you it is. It's just hard for most people. Using God-given gifts, doing something that brings you great joy, the second part of a calling. So how do you find something that brings you great joy? I think the secret to this is what psychiatrists and psychologists call flow. So try this. Think of the last time you enjoyed doing something so much and became so absorbed that you lost track of time. Something that could become a lifelong discipline you could master. Something that you would practice for the sake of practice alone. Find where your most precious God-given gifts intersect with joy and flow, and you'll be very, very close to a calling. But this last part of a calling is the most important of all. Satisfying a deep, burning need in the world. Because a calling must serve others. It must matter to you. So my question for you tonight is, what calls out to your heart? Where is there an injustice or an opportunity that you find irresistible? What problem do you feel you were put on this earth to solve? There you will find your calling. Back to our three questions. Did I contribute something meaningful? Was I a good person? And who did I love and who loved me? The secret to unlocking this second question, was I a good person, is to set clear ethical guardrails and do all you can to make it easier to stay within them. Choose these ethical guardrails well. That means at a minimum, writing down a list of I will nots, things you will not do under any circumstances. And whenever you do cross one of these ethical lines, as you will, saying to yourself, stop. Pausing to reflect before you careen down a slippery slope. Now here's some more practical advice. And I hesitate to say this because it's going to require some language I wouldn't normally use in a speech. But I'm going to pass along the same advice that my mentor and most beloved teacher told us at the Harvard Business School. He wasn't someone who used strong language either. So when he did, it stayed with me. And I hope it stays with you. He told our class, you'll soon be making more money than you need. Many of you will go in debt to buy a fancy condo and a new car. That's a mistake. Because before you buy anything, you should have at least six months of salary in the bank. Why? And here comes the rough language. Because you need to have some fuck you money in the bank. That's so when your boss comes to you and asks you to change your number or falsify a report just a little to make the earnings, you look at him or her in the eye and say, fuck you. I quit. Because you don't want to have to answer that question 
if your house and your family are on the line. My friend, my good friend Jeff Skilling was the CEO of Enron. He too wanted to be the smartest guy in the room, and he was. He had the big office and a fleet of jets and was master of his own destiny. But he was a good man on a fool's errand. He forgot to set ethical guardrails and got so caught up in what he was doing that he couldn't walk away. And now he will spend the rest of his life in a federal penitentiary. Did I contribute something meaningful? Was I a good person? And who did I love and who loved me? Who did I love and who loved me? Choose your fellow travelers well, for it's a trip you'll only take once. If you're like me, you will underestimate the importance of extraordinary people. I used to be frugal in sharing rewards until I learned that extraordinary people get 10 times more done than good people, and good people get 10 times more done than the average person. I didn't appreciate also how important it is to be surrounded by good people, people of character, because like Jeff Skilling and those at Enron, you will come to be like the people who surround you. One final bit of caution about the most special of your fellow travelers. Until I was 30, I didn't spend enough time with my family. It cost me a very painful divorce. I didn't know how precious and fleeting those moments were with a young child and that they can never be recaptured. I pray you will not let that happen to you. This brings me near the end of tonight's journey to the paradox, it's not about you, but it's all about you. It is not about your happiness. You see, the hero's journey isn't easier than a fool's errand. It's harder. You'll have more setbacks and more battles because the stakes are higher. But you'll fight those battles and be more satisfied and more fulfilled because what you do will make a difference. It's all about you because using your gifts to change the world is what matters. It's all about you because you will change in the process and realizing that you will serve a force in this universe bigger than you are. Here's one more glimpse into your future. If you choose the hero's journey, you'll give up measuring yourself against others. Because if you're on a fool's errand, you can always find someone who's better looking or smarter or richer. You'll always be dissatisfied and unfulfilled and looking for another rat race to run. If, however, you're on the hero's journey, the stepping stones you set will be yours. And eventually they will lead you to the gift of gratitude. So here's one last bit of practical advice. Think of someone in your life who you are truly grateful for but have never thanked. A teacher, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent. Write them a one-page letter expressing your gratitude. And this last part's important. And then go to them without warning and read it aloud. Scientific research shows that if you do this, you will be happier and more satisfied for months afterward.
you'll be likely to find more things to be grateful for. You're likely to find more things in your past that you consider lucky and fortunate. And you'll even begin to expect more good things to happen to you. Now, it's strange, but it's true. The scientific research shows that people who believe they'll be luckier actually do turn out to have more good things happen to them. Now, before I end, Bill wanted me to take some questions, so I'd love to open the floor to you and, um, and take a few questions. Hello, um, Alex. Um, can you think of a good book that will complement your speech here today? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I've got a better answer than that. I brought a whole series of Acton's notes for you. And in these notes, they're bibliographies. And so there's a whole list of great books uh, in, in the notes I brought. And so if you go to the bibliographies, I think it'll, it'll give you a better list than I could just standing here and give you two or three. So these are, there's notes and things up here. You're welcome. And if we run out, I'm happy to send as many as people would like. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is Cameron. Um, I'm not sure if I misheard you or heard incorrectly, but you said it's not about your happiness. Could you yeah. elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I, I think as Americans, um, we focus way too much on happiness. So at Acton, we, we differentiate between happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment. So happiness to me is how you feel today. And there's actually a lot of great research that shows that 60 to 70% of that is actually genetically determined. We have a happiness set point, and we'll return to that. If you win the lottery, if you have a death in the family, you'll still, within 90 days, go back to that set point. So if you're chasing this momentary happiness, you're always dissatisfied. Satisfaction, on the other hand, is looking at where you stand in life in its totality and saying, wow, am I generally satisfied? with where I am today? Am I satisfied with what I've accomplished? And then fulfillment, which I think is the most important thing, is, beginning, is being able to stand at age 70 or 80 or 85 and look back and say, I became the person I should have become. Uh, I used my gifts to their fullest. I have no regrets. In fact, when you, when you look at people, the research done on people older, no one, and I mean the, the data is very clear, no one says, gee, I'm really sorry for all those mistakes I made or those risks I took. Almost to a person, they regret the risk they didn't take. So, so I make a distinction. We often chase this momentary happiness, and I think that's really what leads us down, down a fool's errand. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, thank you for your speech over here. Oh, where are we? Hi, sorry. Whoa. Um, I know a lot of people in this room are interested in MBA programs, and yeah. I also know that your program is extremely experimental. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I, as I was saying to some of you earlier today, I, I'm actually not a fan of MBA programs. I think 90% of the people shouldn't go. And in fact, if you're in the business like I am, you see that the, um, the application rates, particularly for the two-year programs, are plummeting because it's too much money and too much time for what you get. Uh, so I'm a bigger fan of the School of Hard Knocks. What our school tries to deliver are 350 real-world experiences with you standing in the shoes of an entrepreneur, with a successful entrepreneur as your case leader asking you questions, 
and making you figure it out. And we believe in that because we believe that after seeing pattern after pattern after pattern and having yourself be in the fire, making tough decisions, when the real world happens and you have to make a tough decision, you'll be ready. It's somewhat like flying a simulator. I remember back in, in, in uh, Sweden, I was flying this flight simulator, and it was a DC-9, and we were coming in, and there was rain and ice, and I was getting more and more nervous, and there was sweat pouring off. And finally, they loaded me up with too many problems, and the plane crashed, and there was smoke and red lights, and I thought I died. And you know what happened next? They pushed the button, and we were back out on final approach again. I got to try it again. But that feeling of, this matters, this could be me, this could really hurt someone, is really important. So our school is very experiential in the sense of, we want people to feel what it's like to be in the cockpit flying the plane. So when you're flying it for real, with real people and real lives and families on the line, you've done it before. Hi. Uh, what's the biggest mistake you've made and what's the best decision you've made? Best decision? <laughs> Um, the, the, the worst mistake I ever made was to get married because I thought it was time to get married. And that's, that's nothing my first wife and I had our share of problems. That was a big mistake. The blessing that came out of it was our 14-year-old daughter, who's just a lot of my life. The best decision I made was uh, my wife and soulmate now marrying her. And my biggest regret is I didn't do it 20 years earlier. So... Um, so those are, those are both related. No mistakes are things I've done in business. I've made a million mistakes. But my goal now is to fail early, cheaply, and often. Because mistakes are a great thing. And, and the biggest mistake I would have made early was being too prideful to make a mistake. I thought mistakes would hurt. And, and they do a little bit, but the more you make them, you realize you're just going to screw things up, and that's okay. Because you stand back up and you fix them. All right, we'll take two more because I'm not going to hold you guys here. I'll stick around as long as you want if you want to come up afterwards. Yes, sir. Hi. Can you elaborate on, like, maybe experience or something, a learning from your first um, business that you launched? Oh, gosh. Uh, there were so many lessons. <laughs> maybe one particular? Yeah, well, I remember one in particular. We were, we were in the oil and gas business, so we were, we were drilling holes out in the Gulf of Mexico. And I remember scraping together enough money to drill one well. So the whole company hinged on whether this well worked or not. And we finally drilled and we got down close to the pay zone and I stayed up three or four days in a row waiting for the log to come in that would tell us whether it was a success or not. And finally they got the well down and the log came over in those days it came over a, like a teletype, like a fax machine and it was a dry hole. So we were done. And then we drilled another 100 feet, and I'd like to tell you we hit a bonanza like Jed Clampett. We found this great. But that actually wasn't true. We found enough oil and gas to set a platform and make a little money. But what that taught me, I mean, this, this searing bit of being an entrepreneur is you, you, know, you have to face those moments when it seems like it's all over, but it's never really all over. You can always pick yourself back up and drill another 100 feet or go hustle to get, as long as you don't make a mistake that damages your reputation. Because that's like a dinner plate. When you drop that and break it, that really is something that's very hard to come back from. But, but all the other mistakes, uh, they seem tough at the time. I mean, they seem like they're life-ending. But in truth, they're not. Yes, sir. Uh, for starters, thanks for coming to talk. Um, 
I have a question that I want to ask because I have a friend who's a few years older and he's now going through an MBA program at one of the big East Coast business schools and he's in a position where he's going to be making more money than he knows what to do with very soon. Yep. Uh, but I, I said I, I've envied him for a while because his purpose for doing this is, is not to make a whole crap load of money or anything like that. And uh, I think a big part of it for him is, uh, I mean, he's factored Buddhism, I guess, very heavily into the way that he views the world and thinks about things. And I wanted to ask if, if spirituality or religion had anything to do with it for you. Um, I, I'll hold that to the end. That's a, that's a great segue into the end. How's that? I'll, I'll answer that in about two minutes. Yeah. And I will stay around as long as people want to talk. I just want to hold everybody here. So let Jeff, me end, okay. end with these words. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Beyond, you, okay. oh, no, no. You, go ahead. You have a question? No, I, are there folks, uh, you've met a lot of folks in different industries you've been involved in, Jeff. Sure. Are there folks who stand out as mentors who really uh, touched you uh, in, in giving you some guiding direction for your future endeavors? Yeah, there, there, there are quite a few. And names, some names you recognize and some you wouldn't. I'll tell you, the ones, though, that, that really touched me, I mean, the ones, obviously, that care about you as a person and really you know, are, are close to you, but... The ones that really touch me are the ones that would start out with my biggest mistake or my biggest regret. And, and on Acton's, uh, Acton's Hero uh, website, which is actonhero.org, we have these videos of, of entrepreneurial heroes, I mean, people that have really been successful. But everyone starts out with, my greatest challenge was overcoming alcoholism. My greatest challenge was at age 22, I still couldn't read. Or I was raised in the third ward in Houston. Or when I cheated on my wife and partners. Because what it does is it shows you that this hero's journey is not about the success. It's about the courage when you have these setbacks. So when you hear someone who's really, really successful, and you think they're a role model and you want to make them into the Wizard of Oz, and then you actually realize they're just another person behind the curtain, like you and me, that's the most powerful times. Because everyone I know that I know well that's been successful, they have every bit as many demons as you do. And, and we try to tell our students at Acton, we're all about making money. And we're about putting people between sales and operations and running a company and making a ton of money. We think that's terrific. But being rich is about making more than you spend. So your time belongs to you. And I have a lot of friends that have a lot of money that have spent it all or borrowed it all. And all they worry about is making more. And again, I love, making money is terrific, but not if it owns you. And so the secret, I think, is spending less than you make. And then you can do what you want to with your time. And that's, that's the most precious gift you have. All right, so I'll end with this. Um, in the beginning, I promised to give you a, a sense of your future, whether you chose the hero's journey or not. So here's that glimpse. Every one of you in this room will look back and realize you were worried about the wrong thing. For some of you, it will be the most expensive mistake you will make in your life. You will be successful. You will make more money than you need, but as I said before, you'll find out that being rich is about spending less than you make so that your time belongs to you. Failure once so feared seen in reverse, will only have made you stronger. Increasingly, and especially if you resist the hero's journey, this call to the hero's journey, 
you will find your greatest horror isn't failure. It's waking up at age 55 or 60 and realizing that you've wasted your life. Lord Acton, the Victorian scholar of freedom that our school's named after, once said this, a wise person does it once, what a fool does it last. Both do the same thing, just at different times. My question is, which one are you? Do you have the courage to take that first step on the hero's journey? And do you have the courage to take it tonight? You are the best and brightest students we have in a very special place in the freest country on earth at a time when freedom and markets are sweeping the globe. If you don't choose a hero's journey, then who? And if not now, then when? I'll end with a very personal message that goes to what you ask. And each of you will have to make this decision on your own. But no matter what happens in my life from this point on, I know now that I was never master of my own destiny. So when that final day comes, as it will for us all, I pray that I will not be standing tall, but on my knees, full of gratitude, hoping to hear those words so beautifully written in Matthew. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you, and may God bless you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.